Live from Sydney, this is General Ike, Building Jerusalem. And we are live. Our guest today is one and only Salvatore Babunas, Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Sydney and author of a new book, The New Authoritarianism. Salvatore Babunas, great to have you back on the show. Great to be on the show, and literally the one and only. The one and only? In the world. Uh, Babonis is a misspelled Greek name that got misspelled at Ellis Island, and Salvatore is a very old-fashioned Italian name. Uh, put those together, I'm the only Salvatore Babonis in the world. How was Babonis spelled before? B-E-B-O-N-I-S. Bebonis. Bebonis. Be- say again? Well, the Greek beta is now pronounced with a V sound. Bevonis. So Bevonis. Bevonis. Yeah. Beautiful. Salvatore Bevonis. Yeah. Could have been. So <laughs> Could have you, been. you got a new book out. And yep. this is the New the, Authoritarianism, Trump Populism, and the Tyranny of Experts. So I want to I want to talk about this idea that of the experts as a, as a tyrant class. You got it. And you, you talk about authoritarianism as has its origins in the new book uh, with um, old with old, like, anti-church sentiments? Yeah, well, authoritarianism was originally defined in the United States with reference to authoritarian religion. Uh, so people, spiritualists in the 1860s and 1870s, writing about authoritarian religions where you listen to a preacher or read from a book, uh, but instead the new spiritualists wanted to discover religion within ourselves. Quickly taken up by the anarchists, who claimed that authoritarian government uh, was trying to shut down saloons and brothels. <laughs> okay. But you can't call but that, Trump... But the modern, the modern take of it is now very different. Well, the modern take is very different. Pretty much anyone political scientists don't like, they call an authoritarian. That's how I would have it. Uh, but historically, you know, in political science, authoritarianism has been applied to you know, fascist regimes or uh, regimes like Erdogan's in Turkey, uh, regimes that rely on deference to authority. Now, deference to authority, obviously, is at the root of the idea of authoritarianism. What experts don't want to realize, what certainly what political scientists don't want to realize, is that deference to their authority is also a form of authoritarianism. I mean, yes, it's authoritarianism when you say, listen to me because I'm the king, or listen to me because I have the support of the church. Uh, But it's also authoritarianism to say, Listen to me because the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change says you have to. Is whenever you say you have to do this policy because some authority said it, that's authoritarianism. Okay, so a lot of these ones, like you mentioned climate change, there are a lot of uh, issues where experts weigh in in a way that's significant to the debate. Can you give an example of it working on like a really small scale and then we can try and work up from there? Well, you know, it, experts weighing in is not a problem. Experts saying that we're the only people who can weigh in. That's a problem. So take a look right now in the United States. There's a lot of news about the so-called migrant caravan, the people approaching the Mexican border. And the experts, that is human rights lawyers, are saying that every single one of those people have to be given the opportunity to come to the U.S. border and apply for asylum. Now, they're saying the U.S. has no democratic control over this. The United States people can't decide whether or not to allow people in because both international and U.S. law say that anyone is allowed to apply for asylum. Okay. Now, 
the authoritarians, the, or I should say the human rights experts, are certainly correct in their interpretation of the law. But that's not a very good political solution. The idea that literally anybody can walk up to the U.S. border, say, I want to claim asylum, and then that person must be allowed entry into the country, given the opportunity to stay there and work there for the next five or seven years while their case is heard. Then their kids have spent seven years in U.S. schools. And then at that point, you say, oh, well, they're not really refugees, but how can you kick someone out whose kids have been here seven years and have only ever been in school in the United States? Right. And then they become dreamers. <laughs> so if you follow the authoritarian view on asylum seeking, uh, you get into these political situations where the experts get to call the shots. No longer can a country set its own immigration policy. Instead, you have to take the policy that the experts tell you uh, is, the, is the right one, is the legal one, is the appropriate one, without listening to what people themselves think about it. Okay. So in, in the situation where like that specific one, it, it does seem to be like there's a legal issue at play and a political issue at play. Does, yeah. does, the, does U.S. law, as far as you understand it, does the U.S. law actually mandate that anyone who wants to apply for asylum be given the option? As I understand it, it does. The problem is that experts have now, in a really cute maneuver, told everyone approaching the border, oh, just apply for asylum. So when reporters go and talk to the people in the caravan, they routinely say, I'm looking for a better job in America. I just want a better life for my kids. Hmm. The things everybody wants. Hmm. But they've been advised that if they actually want to get in, they should go and they should claim asylum. Now, a very small number of people in the caravan are actually refugees from, uh, from essentially pogroms against indigenous villages in Honduras. I mean, and I wrote a whole book chapter three years ago advocating that these people should be allowed refugee status in the United States because mm -hmm. they are refugees and they do need refuge. But that doesn't mean we should advise that every single person who wants to come to the U.S. should simply claim to be a refugee. And that's the same thing that happened in Europe. So three million people rushed into Europe in 2015, 2016. Now, some of them are refugees. There's no doubt about that. But many, many more of them were advised that if you claim to be a refugee, you'll get in. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter what you actually are. You should tell the story you're a refugee and that'll get you in. So what, what the problem here is that the human rights lawyers are advising people heading towards the border looking for, as you say, a better job or a better life. You're advising them, they're advising these people to say, to, to pretend that they've been, um, that they're yeah. fleeing horrible conditions. And, and that's the small P problem. But the big P problem is that we have defined entire areas of human life as being outside the control of democratic decision-making. Can, can, we, can we move like away from the U.S. law question into like a, a broader example? Well, that's what I mean by the little p versus the big okay. p problem. You know, the, the little p problem is you know, these particular asylum seekers or, uh, you know, in, in the same thing in Europe with asylum seekers or, or more broadly about uh, enforcement of, you know, the decision to move towards carbon markets or reduce carbon emissions or, you know, a whole range of areas of social policy that, you know, experts say there's only one allowable conclusion, mm -hmm. and you have to follow that. Of course, put this all together, and what it is is a redistribution of power in our democracies from the electorate to the experts. I mean, if you think about it, there are area after area after area of human life that has been taken out of the domain of democratic decision-making and put in the hands of the expert class. It used to be just the military. You know, it used to be that, well, you can't fight a war democratically. 
And so the military has to be authoritarian. Mm -hmm. You have to take orders. You can't have free speech. You can't question them. But then it was the judiciary. And instead of having law made democratically, increasingly we have judge-made law. That that is, supreme, Supreme Courts around the world and increasingly international tribunals have simply interpreted the law in such a way as to create new rights and to create effectively new law. And the most famous example of this is Roe versus Wade in the United States. Now, again, I wrote a book in which I had a chapter advocating a woman's right to an abortion. I absolutely believe as a sociologist that that a woman must have a right to an abortion from a social policy standpoint, and I believe should have a right to an abortion from a moral standpoint, just as a human being. That said, nothing in the United States Constitution mentions abortion. Nothing in the United States Constitution even comes close to mentioning abortion. The idea that a woman has a right to an abortion because there's an implicit privacy protection in the Constitution, which isn't there either, right? But the Constitution implicitly protects privacy. And since medical decisions are somehow implicitly private, uh, a woman implicitly has a right to an abortion. That's a heroic extension to go from the U.S. Constitution to the constitutional right to have an abortion in the United States. And that's, that's what happened in Roe versus Wade? That's what happened with Roe versus Wade. That's what happened with gay rights. So in state after state in the United States, gay rights activists were winning the right to marriage mm-hmm. democratically, putting it on ballots and virtually every ballot they put it on, they won. Mm-hmm. If I had the opportunity to vote for gay marriage, I would vote in favor. I definitely support gay marriage rights. But I don't see anywhere in the Constitution where it assures the right of people to marry people of the same sex just because that's what they prefer. Now, there is equal protection under the law in the Constitution, and you can stretch equal protection of the law under the law to mean if you're the kind of person who wants to marry a kind of person like you, then you're protected. But, of course, the Supreme Court didn't find that uh, the marriage of adults with children is protected under the Constitution, under equal protection. It didn't decide that you can have multiple husbands or wives, because after all, equal protection of the law. I mean, why don't Saudis who move to the United States who have you know one man with two or three wives, those wives are not given spousal status in the U.S. because you know what? There's no equal protection under the law for polygamy. The only equal protection under the law we found in terms of marriage is for straight versus gay marriage. Well, I think that's a problem, right? So increasingly we find rights, not we, the expert class finds rights that it believes should exist but don't actually exist in writing. Uh, but nonetheless, they fudge them and impose them on the rest of society. Okay, okay, so that makes sense to me in terms of in terms of Supreme Court justices replacing the legislature. And in, that in finance, I mentioned the military. I mentioned the justice system. Go to finance. Uh, it used to be that national finance ministries decided on the value of money, decided on interest rates, you know, made economic decisions. That's mostly been transferred in most of the world to central banks. So we've moved from elected responsibility for uh, managing the economy to unelected responsibility for managing the economy. Now, it, it may Whoa, what was this national finance ministry? Well, take England for example. England only established. I mean, Bank of England uh, was always subject to parliamentary oversight until I think it was about ten years ago. It was given really its independence. That's right? terrifying. Uh, in the United States, there was no central bank until 1916, 1912, the nineteen tens. The U.S. Federal Reserve was created. 
Uh, you know, the idea that and, and the even then, reserve is also an example of the expert class in this model. Well, look, everyone is is I mean, all of us who are who are educated professionals are in the expert class. The difference is, should the currency be managed by experts or should it be managed by legislation, you know, by, by, by the, the accountable branch? Uh, but then you get beyond the currency because the Federal Reserve originally was just managing the currency. Mm-hmm. But of course, it's added functions. It also supervises banks. It also then can bail out banks. In the 2008 financial crisis, the Federal Reserve lent $3 trillion to the European Central Bank. Now, on its own initiative, with no congressional authorization, now, for Congress to get a $3 trillion bill through Congress to lend to Europeans, that's bigger than the Marshall Plan, right? That's, that's immensely bigger than the Marshall Plan. Never would have happened. But the Federal Reserve, on its own authority, without asking Congress, can simply lend $3 trillion because it thinks it's prudentially, prudentially the responsible thing to do. And, and no one... There are no elected officials overlooking that process. The only point at which elected officials can intervene in that process is when they appoint the Board of Governors in the first place and if they want to remove or impeach them. But once they're appointed, just like the Supreme Court, they decide how they want. They don't go to Congress and ask, is this a good idea? Uh, they don't have any oversight. Okay. You know, there's no. They wouldn't even tell Congress they lent money to the European Central Bank. It took a Freedom of Information Act request. Seriously? To find that out. Whoa. Okay, that's something. Right. Wait, this massive loan? You say three, three trillion? trillion they didn't. They didn't mention three trillion dollars to Congress. Not only did they not mention it, they refused their congressional request for information about it. And it was only revealed later through Freedom of Information Act. Requests. And was, and none of this is, of course, as I can, as far as I can tell. And that only came out this year, by the way. So the, well, we only we, found out the 2008 lending to the European Central Bank was only revealed a few months ago in 2018. Okay. Through this request. So ten years later, they finally reveal it. Freedom of Information Act. It doesn't even seem. They didn't even reveal it. Like they were they they, they they didn't reveal it. They gave out a dump of documents, and right. the journalists who requested the dump of documents had to piece together. I'm oh, sorry, the academics who requested the, the dump of documents that it pieced together. That's how much WikiLeaks it? No, it wasn't WikiLeaks. This was a Freedom of no, Information like Act. No, like the same yes, process. Yes, they had like, to. Here's all the information. Here's the, they released, I think it was 30,000 pages of Jeez. documents, and people had to weed through, had to uh, uh, go through it and try to find the evidence. Okay, so, so the military was first, but then the judiciary, economic policy, mm-hmm. education policy. Countries like Australia, Australia has a nat- national curriculum. How much parental input is there? into the national curriculum in Australia. You parental know, input? Parental input. How much, I mean... What, by what mechanism would you have parental input? Oh, well, pre- parents are voters, first of all, so through the political machinery. Okay. Uh, but also, in, you know, in the United States, historically, we had local school boards run by parents, right? So who told... Those are gone? Those are disappearing. They're not gone. It depends right. on the state. It depends on how much they've disappeared. But we're also moving towards... The... We're also moving towards a national curriculum in the United States. We're just not as far down the road. As Australia, as Australia is. is. So in Australia, national curriculum means school boards no longer have the power to set curriculum for their particular schools. It means the power is devolving upwards towards... An appointed board in Canberra board. sets okay. the entire curriculum and, and objectives for every grade level and every subject in Australia, all the way up until you do your HSCs and you know, until you go on to the university. That's right? genuinely terrifying. Well, I think it is. Uh, now, I don't accuse the experts of using that irresponsibly. A lot of people on the, you know, a lot of people on the conservative side of politics are very angry about Australia's national curriculum because the three target areas are uh, uh, Aboriginal Australia, Australia in Asia, 
Uh, and third world company. <laughs> oh, and the environment and global What's warming. The third one? Uh, global warming, uh, uh, climate change. Mm-hmm. So the big three integrative topics are Aboriginal Australia, Australia in Asia, and climate change. In what field? This is the overarching themes of the. That's not all the curriculum does. These are the three. Those are the three themes. The three target themes. Look, it's not what you do in math class, but these are the three. These are the three big themes that they came out with as the national priority areas for the national curriculum. Now, conservative primary school, high school. As I understand it, this is the whole. Look, I'm not an expert in Australian education. Don't take my word for this. These are the three the three major themes that have been identified by the expert board that put together the national curriculum. Conservatives in Australia are upset because they'd rather have things, for example. Uh, like Australia's Christian heritage, <laughs> you know, or things like freedom right. or free markets, you know. Now, I don't take a position on that. I mean, I, I think I think Aboriginal heritage, Australia and Asia, and climate change are perfectly good things to have in a national curriculum. I, I, I'm not Australian. I don't have a horse in this race. But I do think that those things should be, if not directly voted on by parents or directly decided on by parents in their own schools, at a minimum, these should be discussed in Parliament. They should be you know, open to debate. That is, there should be a parliamentary give and take over, you know, do we want to have climate change as one of the big three themes of our national curriculum? And I bet if there was a parliamentary give and take, it never would have made it in. Right. right? If, if, the, if the democratic mechanisms through which Australia has governed were allowed to intervene in that curriculum, it never would have so made why, it in. So why are they not allowed anymore? What's the process by which the power is shifted? Because the elected officials simply appoint an expert board, and from then on, the expert board takes it. In some areas, the national officials don't even appoint the expert board. So in, in, some, in many areas of life, it's the uh, associations who appoint their own experts. So if you think of law, the bar association decides what the rules of the legal profession will be. Mm-hmm. And they're, then they're rubber-stamped by, uh, you know, by the legal authorities. Right? Sure. But, but the proposal comes from the bar association. Now, I'm not an expert in Australian education or Australian law, but the you know, but the, the basic shift from parents deciding in local school boards what their kids will learn to an expert board appointed from among the leaders of education unions and teachers associations and NGOs, and that board then deciding what students will learn. That shift has occurred everywhere. I mean, that, that shift has occurred in Australia and the United States and England. And these and similar shifts are happening, of course, all around the world. So what's driving these shifts? I mean, I think it's a power grab. So, you know, if it, you have lots of things of the, of the, on behalf of the expert class. Okay. And, and, a, and a not unexpected power grab. I mean, as life professionalizes, as we need greater and greater education and competence to take on uh, managing our more and more complex world, we naturally defer to experts. I think it's incumbent on experts then to be more modest in their role, right? So if someone puts the trust in me, oh, for example, I'm a sociologist. I teach sociology at the University of Sydney. Uh, I'm entrusted with that role. When I was entrusted with a broad departmental role teaching introduction to sociology, instead of teaching what I wanted, I did a broad consultation. That is, I brought it together all of my colleagues. I asked, what things do we all want taught in this class? I would love to have consulted with students, so it's very difficult to do that at the University of Sydney. Uh, but you know, I took on the role with some degree of modesty, that it's, not, that it's a trust. It's not for me to decide. Yes, it's for me to administer, mm-hmm. but not for me to decide. 
Now, I'll bet if now I'm sure the national curriculum in Australia had a formal consultation process. But I think we all know that formal consultation processes rarely seek out the views of ordinary parents. When those parents do speak up, they're treated pro forma as, you know, disgruntled people we have to listen to, right. uh, not as serious voices. In well, the golly, we should really take that into account and change the program around for it. Right. And I think that this is, you know, the, the, the increasing bureaucratization of life mm-hmm. is perhaps inevitable. But it doesn't mean that the people can't fight back. It doesn't mean that people can't demand to have local school boards. Uh, it doesn't mean that people can't demand to have more and more policies determined by parliaments and congresses instead of by uh, reserve boards and unelected judges. Uh, I've proposed, uh, for that matter, electing judges. I mean, in the United States, there's a long tradition of elected judges. I'd like to see the U.S. Supreme Court elected. Uh, wow. Well, anyone who saw the Kavanaugh hearings, who still claims that the Supreme Court is a non-political branch of government, (laughs) that is just a joke. The Supreme Court is extraordinarily politicized in the United States. And if it's political, well, let's vote for it. I don't see any reason why the Supreme Court should reflect the political attitudes of 30 years ago when the justices were appointed. I don't see any reason why Donald Trump should get to appoint three Supreme Court justices just because people happen to die now. Mm. <laughs> you know, right. And the next president should appoint none because he appointed young people who are going to live for another 40 years in the court. I mean, it's become a joke, the idea that now on the Supreme Court, you just appoint the youngest, most ideological person you can, Brett Kavanaugh, uh, because you know, that way you can have your man on the court for another 40 years. That's not a way to run That's a court terrible. system. It's yeah. a terrible way to run the court system. Oh, wow. And so I'd like was to it, see Was elections. it kind of done in um, good faith for a while that people were deliberately appointing older judges? No, it's just that the change, uh, I mean, right back in the, the first court uh, under the Federalists in 1790, uh, 1789, uh, in the first court, they uh, appointed people like John Marshall, who I believe served for 40 years. He, I think he was uh, America's longest serving chief justice. I'd have to get the numbers from the book out mm-hmm. of the top of my head. Uh, so right from the beginning of the Republic, presidents liked to appoint young people of their party who could then carry their party forward. I mean, the Supreme Court in the United States had a Federalist majority long after the Federalist Party itself had ceased to exist. Right. Yet the old Federalists were still running uh, the Supreme, Supreme Court. Court. Because they got appointed back. Because they the were young, they were appointed by the Federalists. That's they so interesting. Uh, now it's simply become more and more blatant today. I mean, today we don't even pretend that Supreme Court nomination processes are, uh, you know, a fair evaluation of a judge with no thought about his or her political leanings, right? That's, that's no, we don't even pretend. I mean, right. you know, only a few uh, diehard uh you know, legal scholars still try to pretend that this is a non-political process. Um, but if it's political, let's have votes, mm-hmm. right? To, to what extent? So I, it feels to me like voting on Supreme Court judges, I don't know anything about any of the, the mechanisms involved here, yeah. but just based off, off our like three minutes of conversation, my very poor understanding of the American judiciary, that seems to make perfect sense. Yeah, Supreme Court judges going to have a lot of control over the legal future of America, fine. Every colleague that I sent my article to vehemently opposed the idea. Of electing And these are colleagues the who, are, who are sympathetic to me and my general point of view. Uh, you know, these are friends. Not, I didn't send it to enemies. I sent it to colleagues and said, you know, I, I have this new article. They published it on my birthday, which I was very happy, happy about. Birthday. Thank you. 
And uh, every single colleague I sent it to said, no, we could never do that. That would be disaster you know, because it would open the Supreme Court up to all sorts of crazy people. And uh, to that, I reply, what about Donald Trump? <laughs> the only qualification for the presidency <sighs> is that you'd be 35 years old and born in the United States or born in America. Uh, well, if that's good enough to be president, <laughs> shouldn't that be good enough to be a Supreme Court judge? So, so like, I mean, that brings us around nicely to one of the other um, wings of, of your book, which is this idea. Which is the new authoritarianism, this, Trump populism and the tyranny of the, <laughs> the tyranny of Available experts. now. Available oh, now. You got it. Yeah. Oh, man. It, it, it's, um, where are you selling it? You selling it on Amazon, eBay? The, the it's on all the usual places and, and Dimmick's, uh says that they'll stock it in uh, Christmas, roughly around Christmas. So we'll Beautiful. see if they get it. And uh, we can throw a coupon up. We're discussing. Yeah, yeah, we'll put a. Anyone can get a coupon, no problem. All right, buildingjerusalem.org for your coupon for 20% off on site. I don't even, maybe more than 20%. More than 20? I'll check. Let's say 10. And then be present (laughs) surprised if it's more. Um, So I'll put that up on the website. But this is this this, um, uh, most recent election, the 2016 election, this is pivotal to your case. Yes. Yeah, the book, the book was inspired by uh, Trump's inauguration speech. And the, I literally wrote the book, the first draft, in the seven days following Trump's inauguration speech. Wow. Uh, you, I, put, you, you wrote the first draft of the book in a week. That this whole thing was I, 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 I didn't get a day of rest, uh, but I did get the seven days done. Uh, short book. It was 4,000 words a day was my, the pace that I had to keep to do the book. And, and I got it done. Uh, the... What... What I heard, so what, you know, I heard expert evaluations of Trump's inauguration, comparing his inaugural address to the Nuremberg rallies uh, of Adolf Hitler in World War II. And I thought, that's crazy. You know, you might dislike Donald Trump, but the problem with calling Donald Trump an, an authoritarian is that he's he's a complete anti-authoritarian right the only authority he respects is himself he's not you know he's not people are not marching in straight lines around donald trump right? people, are, people are marching in every Jeez. direction in every direction possible what i heard when that's i heard a, his that's speech, a really good that's a really good comment on it yeah marching I, in every direction what, possible. what i heard when i heard his speech were uh echoes of the old american progressive movement the old populists of the 1896 election and uh, that election was William Jennings Bryant, the Democrat, oh, yes, I remember and the that. cross of gold. Do you remember <laughs> well, the cross of gold speech? Uh, William Jennings Bryant. What was the cross of gold speech? Well, the cross of gold speech was the speech demanding the free and unlimited coinage of silver in the United States because the United States was in the grip of a deflationary return to, or not return, deflationary establishment of the gold standard. Uh, and it was causing a massive depression in the United States in the 1890s. Uh, experts today, when they look back at the Silver Crusade, as it's been called, still make fun of it as, you know, these uh, populists who just wanted inflation and how terrible that was. And they don't seem to have learned a lesson of history that most economists think the gold standard caused the Great Depression, right, in the deflation of the gold standard. And what we needed in the 1930s was more inflation. Well, so so hang on. Let me see if I understood this, because I, I, economics is not my strong suit here. So William Jennings Bryan and his 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 crowd again they they take power and Democratic they say, Party Democratic Party and they say um, we need to to mint more silver. They, they so say they, gold, they say about the gold standard you shall not you shall not press down upon the brow of labor this crown of thorns you shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. 
the famous speech uh, demanding inflation. But in that cross of gold speech, uh, Brian uh, complained about foreigners, <laughs> complained about uh, the bankers, the international bankers. Now, for him, it was uh, London was the target. So these bankers in London are going to determine America's money supply if we go on the gold standard. Uh, on or off? If we go on, on they the were going standard. on. The, he wanted to take it off the gold standard, but he was saying that you know what the Republicans want is to put our country in the hands of foreigners and bankers. The Republicans at the time were even to put the currency on the gold yes, standard. Yes, McKinley was the gold standard man. Uh, he was running against William McKinley. He was going to the gold standard. And that eventually came through. And that got through. Um, and, you know, I think... I think McKinley's the guy who took the presidency. Yes, McKinley okay. won. Brian lost. Uh, and we got the gold standard, mm-hmm. okay, which then set up the Great Depression another 30 years so later. So had the populace won, we might have avoided I the Great Depression. I think we might have had a lot better economics. Okay. Uh, but, uh, you know, what, what, what Trump reminded me of more than anything else was this famous speech by William Jennings Bryan where he said... Literally, uh, we should put America first. <laughs> we should not listen to, you know, we should not put America in the hands of foreigners and bankers, you know, from now on. He didn't say from now on it's America first, but America first is in the speech. Uh, and to me, that's what Trump was hearkening back. Now, Trump didn't know he was hearkening back to William Jennings Bryan, I'm sure, uh, but it had all the same elements. Now, you know, I don't think all bankers are bad. I'm not against foreigners. Uh, but that strain in America, that nativist America's for Americans strain, is nothing new. You know, it goes back to the beginning of the Republic, and it was certainly big on the progressive side of politics. You know, when when the Republicans were in control, all through the period after the Civil War, it was Republican after Republican after Republican, and these Democrats, who were then the insurgent party, uh, you know, were taking up the populist cause. Now we have this Republican populism, uh, mm-hmm. and it's hitting on those same themes of you know nativism on America for Americans, put America first, you know. And I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. You know, just because I disagree with some of the policies doesn't mean that they're blatantly wrong. Let's take the tariffs for example. Uh, you know, Trump's first action as president was to withdraw from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP. And of course, the global expert class said, you know, this is crazy. The, the whole international trading system is going to fall apart. Trump's a madman. Uh, well, I seem to remember that my own colleagues who are now vehemently anti-Trump, back in 1999, I remember 1999, mm-hmm. they were all protesting against the World Trade Organization and the big anti-globalization protests and the Battle of Seattle which you know, many of my sociologist friends were out marching in the Battle of Seattle against the World Trade Organization. Well, now Trump's taking on the World Trade Organization and Trump is fighting against tariffs. And the same expert class has closed ranks against Donald Trump. So, this, right. so it seems like this, this same policy has sort of switched partisanship in the uh, interim? It hasn't switched parties. It has simply become what was contentious is now no longer subject to debate. So 20 years ago, if you were against free trade, you were part of about 50% of the intellectual class. And this was something that intellectuals debated back and forth, free trade or protectionism, you know, tariffs, barriers, no tariff barriers. Today, because the professional class has settled on the policy of no tariffs, you have to have free trade, other forms of, uh, no, no debate is allowed. Other opinions are no longer allowed to be expressed. They are delegitimized. 
So it, it, you know, it's, it's just like today. Today, if you wanted to be against gay marriage in Australia, you can do it. It's a free country in that sense. But your viewpoint would be completely delegitimized. Mm. Right? Now, once upon a time, you know, 50 years ago, being against gay marriage was a perfectly legitimate view to Isn't point Isn't this just like a, a natural sort of the natural leftward drift of the Overton window? Like acceptable political opinions just keep moving left wing in the absence, absence yeah, of crisis. It, to some extent it is, but I am against the authoritarianism of the expert class, whether it was 50 years ago or now. I'm not a conservative opponent of experts. I'm not a progressive opponent of experts. Uh, I'm an opponent of expert decision making. You know, that, that is, if, you, if we were talking 60 years ago, I'd be ra- 70 years ago, I'd be railing against McCarthyism. You know, because I would say that people have a free speech right, and it doesn't matter that their free speech is something you don't approve of. Marxism, communism, socialism. You know, I would be defending the people who were then not allowed to say their viewpoint. Right. You know. Well, okay, today so- I'm defending conservatives. So today you're defending the conservatives because the conservatives are the ones who are actually making this point at the moment. The ones who are no longer allowed to express their views on issues relating to religion, freedom of conscience, uh, sexuality, uh, immigration. And you think you, your perception is that they're not allowed to do these things because they've been delegitimized by the expert class? These yes, opinions? Uh, yes. So by the class of people like myself who control access to newspapers, magazines, television, who run the human, the human rights commissions, uh, who police what is you know, said, the people who staff the law courts that decide on defamation cases. You Do know, you think that in some sense these are all the same people? They're all people who, who socialize with and marry each other. Mm-hmm. Right? So if I told you that a human rights, uh, the, if I told you that a human rights lawyer was married to a banker or a university professor or a government bureaucrat uh, or, you know, uh, a scientist. Yeah, that sounds reasonable. If I told you a human rights lawyer was married to someone who works at Kohl's, you'd think that's a strange marriage. Very strange marriage. <laughs> right. right. It's legal. You can do it. But it's, it's, very, it's socially very awkward. It's odd. You'd right? notice. Okay. And okay. what I'm saying is that, yes, there's a class of people in all different professions who socialize together, who live with me in Potts Point. I mean, I, you know, in the eastern suburbs, you know, who are part of my milieu, uh, who collectively make decisions and for, the, for society. And they make good decisions. You know, I, I'm not saying that their decisions are all wrong. I'm saying that in democracy, we can't let the experts decide policy. The people have to decide policy. How, how much does that fractionate down, though? Like, to some extent, in a representative democracy, everyone says, that guy, he makes the decisions. And, like, in a, in a um, I guess, as opposed to what, direct town hall democracy, where every single decision everyone gets together and talks about, fine, that makes sense. So then if that, that elected official... If he, he, if he wants to set up a, a group of people to do it. I mean, you mentioned before ministries of finance as opposed yeah, to yeah, central yeah. bank. If there's like a ministry of finance, wouldn't he just like go ahead and, and hire the same it's all a matter. Anyway? It's all a matter of degree. It's all a matter of what the parties put up for debate. Uh, if, you know, if you go back even in the U.S. even 20 years ago, free trade was up for debate. Mm-hmm. You could either vote for someone who was for, for, for free the for free trade or vote for someone who's against free trade. Uh, today, except for Donald Trump, 
you have no opportunity to vote for someone who's against free trade. And Donald Trump was the maverick candidate who shattered shattered the system, right? He was an anti-systemic candidate. So the past few elections, both candidates would have had to be pro-free trade? Would have, well, would have been because that's the only way to rise to the top in those party bureaucracies to get the right press coverage, to, you know, to be endorsed by professional associations, to be endorsed by newspapers. Wow. Uh, you know, you, you have to be, right? This expert consensus trumps democracy. Uh, and I think we need to break that. And that's why I'm really glad that Donald Trump has broken that mold. And I think we need more people to break that mold. You've said before that the 2016 election was, was only half the work and that you, your, your dream election would have been different with, with popular... Oh, my, my dream election would have, would have been Donald Trump versus Bernie Sanders. Why election that? that I think why, Bernie why Sanders Trump would have won. Because I would have liked to see the mold broken in both parties in the United States. Mm-hmm. And the Republican Party, the Republican Party primaries were very clearly, to anyone who watched the debates, Donald Trump versus everybody else. <laughs> right? there wasn't, the others were fighting against each other. They were all fighting against Donald Trump. Uh, there was a single point of view that was the consensus elite Republican point of view, and then there was Donald Trump. Right. Well, in the Democrat and Donald Trump won. Uh, in the Democratic Party, we had a similar debate, except that the power of Hillary Clinton inside the Democratic Party establishment was so strong that she was able to quash the Bernie Sanders campaign. Uh, and so we didn't have that break the mold moment in the Democratic Party. As a result, the Republican Party is now going to reform. Uh, and, and I split the word reform into those two mm. syllables because it's going to reform. It's going to be a different party in 2020 and in 2024 than it has been for the last 20 or 30 years. What sort of differences do you envision? Oh, it's going to be much more open uh, to non-traditional candidates. Uh, it is going to be much more open to viewpoints coming up from below rather than being imposed from above. Uh, it's going to be much more responsive to the desires of its voters. Uh, instead of taking its voters for granted, it's going to you know, really go to bat for its voters. I mean, I think we're going to have a much more democratic, if you will, Republican Party. The, the Democratic Party is still debating whether or not it should have that kind of reform. And when the elections for the, uh, uh, when the internal elections for the uh, appointment of a new Democratic National Committee were were held, the Sanders candidate narrowly lost to the Clinton candidate. And personally, I think Hillary Clinton is, I mean, I've been saying for a year now that Hillary Clinton is clearly running again in 2020. Oh, yeah? Oh, I think so. And then, then... Well, I can go into that in a minute, but then there was a major uh, article in The Hill, the U.S. Insider political magazine, a Capitol Hill's political magazine, uh, saying that Hillary Clinton's going to run. So they came around to my point of view a year late. Uh, why did I think my first indication was that Hillary Clinton had never said that she was not going to run, and the first time she mentioned it was actually in a British interview on a UK radio show, uh, or I'm not sure if it was radio, radio or TV, but it was a British, a British show that she mentioned it. And, you know, if someone of Hillary Clinton's stature is going to make such a big declaration that she's not going to run again, if she really meant it, uh, she would give an exclusive interview to 60 Minutes, mm. why I'm not running. Uh, the fact that she happened to mention it in passing in an interview outside the country, to me, meant that she was putting up the trial balloon for people to say, no, no, we still want you. 
uh, which people did say when she uh, gave that interview. And in recent interviews, she'd said, oh, no, she doesn't plan to run again. Mm-hmm. She didn't say she will not run again. She doesn't plan to, but she believes that she has the right skills to lead America in these difficult times and that other people maybe don't have those skills. So, you know, I, I mean, whether she'll actually register as a candidate, I don't know. That depends on how popular she is with these little things. But, but you know, I think she'll come back. But, but more of the point for me, I, look, I don't care if Hillary Clinton runs or not. Uh, the point for me is that the Democratic Party has not got rid of its superdelegate system through which insiders have dis- well, extraordinarily disproportionate. Can you explain? I, I came across this in your in your writing before. Right. Can you explain what, like, in very basic terms, what the superdelegate system is? How that works? Uh, the U.S. political parties are self-governing, and they can have their own rules. Historically, they have used caucuses, local caucuses, and primaries to elect representatives to a national convention. Historically, they've also given a vote at the national convention ex officio to big-time dignitaries, governors and senators mm-hmm. would typically get a vote. But, you know, out of 4,000 votes, if 20 governors and 50 senators also get to vote, that's just a formality that, you know, recognizes the dignity of their accomplishments. The Democratic Party in the 1990s created, a, I believe it was 1990s, created a whole new layer of these honorary voters, if you will, so that now uh, more than a thousand people hold the right to be delegates, voting delegates to the Democratic National Convention because they've been given that right by the party. They're not there because they are a major elected official, uh, you know, uh, elected by the voters. Uh, They're there because the party has, you know, recognized them as insiders, so to speak. And the idea was to prevent maverick candidacies. Right? Mm-hmm. The, for the idea of the superdelegate system was precisely to prevent a Bernie Sanders. Uh, and, and, and it succeeded in and that it, regard. And it has succeeded well in that regard. So that's 1,000 votes out of 5,000. I don't 5, know the exact numbers. I mean, rough, rough 1,000 out of 4,000. So okay, so, yeah. so that's significant. It's, it was enough, it's enough to, to sway it. It's enough to sway the election. Right, um, wow. On top of that, of course, in the 2016 election, the Democratic National Party refused to give its mailing lists, so these crucial voter lists, likely voter lists, to the Sanders campaign, but they did share them with the Clinton campaign. Get out and that of was here. the huge. Well, that was the huge controversy uh, of the of the campaign. Was, was that just like naked preference, or did they pretend to dress it up somehow? Uh, I don't remember all the details. Okay. Um, so, so like the Democratic Party, as it were, had a sort of internal system to maintain the rule of the expert class, as you're calling them. Yes. Whereas the Republican Party clearly didn't have a strong enough one. Right. So the Republicans lost their party, as it were, to right. the Maverick. The Democrats held their party against the Maverick, but then lost the election. I think that's a good summary of the situation. And because they won the popular vote in the election in 2016, the Democratic establishment, for that matter, I think Hillary Clinton herself, they still think that they can win again in 2020. You know, they still think Trump's vulnerable, which, you know, in many ways he is, and that they're going to win the election without having to reform. And I think that's really sad. Uh, not sad that they might win the election or lose the election. It's sad that they're not going to take the opportunity to reform. Mm-hmm. Is, is this, okay, so the, just to, to move sideways a bit, uh, there's, a, there's a pattern that I've noticed in elections over the past I don't know, 50 years or so. It's usually two terms red, two terms blue, yeah. with like one or two exceptions. Um, do you think that they would have learned, like, even if the Democrats went populist, that have a shot at 2020? Or is it just like, 
I'm well, not where does gonna, that two red, two blue thing come from? Look, I, I, I'm not going to predict who's going to win the election. You, you never know who's going to win the election. Right. People say that, that most presidents serve two terms, but they forget the fact that someone to be elected president had to be elected president. So that meant that they were successful to begin right. with, right? So there's a, there's a, a, a built-in, it's, it's not that the incumbent party has an advantage, it's that the person who was elected has proven by that very electability mm. <laughs> that, that in, in the American case, we had all males, that he is a good candidate. Right. Uh, so so I don't he's, know run, he's running the second election. We, the, the bias, yes, the, yeah. the, the implicit bias is that, you know, we know that he's a better than 50% candidate if he won 50, more than 50% the last time. Uh, so I don't know. Look, I don't know who's going to win the, the 2020 election. But whoever runs, I would like to see reflecting the democratic will of the people, not reflecting the insider will of the power brokers in Washington. And dare I say, you know, here in Australia, you, of course, have it much worse where, uh, you know, most elections or most candidates uh, are put into seats by pre-selection. The party grandees decide in closed meetings who's going to run for which seats in Australia, where more than 50 percent of Australian parliamentarians are former party employees who work their way up the ladder, so to speak, in the party. Uh, you know, the opportunity for a maverick candidate to somehow win a seat as a liberal or as a labor candidate is virtually nil in Australia. They can win as independents, hmm. uh, but they can't win inside the party system. And I think that that's even worse as a democratic system. It actually produces better policies. Hey, I want to be right. clear, you know, government by experts generally produces better policies than government by democracy. But I believe in democracy more than I believe in good policy. Why do you believe in democracy more than good policy? Because I'm romantic. Uh, <laughs> you, you know, I, I, I simply believe that, and this is a matter of faith, it's not a matter of science. You know, I believe that the way we should govern ourselves uh, is by governing ourselves. Uh, that we shouldn't leave the decisions of, uh, of politics and the management of our life in, in public uh, to somebody else. You know, I don't want a philosopher king, no matter how great a philosopher. You know, I want the rough and tumble of, you know, you and I have to argue things out. And how do we ultimately argue it out? Well, we both have to get in front of the crowd and see who can get the most votes. And, you know, if you vote me off the island, that's fine. I'll take my lumps and go. Uh, but I, you know, but that's a matter of faith. You know, it, we could argue whether democratic systems produce systematically better outcomes than non-democratic systems. Uh, I don't think there's a lot of evidence on that either way. Uh, the evidence, to what extent it exists, seems to be that democratic systems produce more of a medium, less risky outcome, both less risky on the upside and less risky on the downside, as you would expect. Uh, but, you know, uh, that's not the reason I believe in democracy. I, I'm not going to make, even if you could show me empirically that democracy is a suboptimal form of government, I would still want it. And not just me. I mean, I'll, I'll bring in the famous, the, the famous Winston Churchill quote. You know, Winston Churchill is always quoted by political scientists, by experts, as saying that democracy is the worst form of government except all those other forms that have been tried, mm -hmm. implying that you know, somehow Winston Churchill was a reluctant Democrat. Okay. The real quote that no one ever quotes is, it has been said that democracy is the worst form of government, except all those other forms that have been tried from time to time. But there is a broad feeling in our country that the people should rule. 
continuously rule, and that public opinion expressed by all constitutional means should shape, guide, and control the actions of ministers who are their servants and not their masters. The original quote is an unabashedly populist statement by Winston Churchill, which has been commandeered and co-opted by political scientists and pundits into a wishy-washy acceptance of democracy because we have to. That's not what Churchill the felt. Exact opposite sentiment. It was the exact opposite sentiment of how it actually was meant. And that, I think, is the problem with letting experts run the show, is that there's too much opportunity for them to put their own interests or their own feelings or their own desires first. And you see that, of course, in things like the national curriculum in Australia. You see things with the dialogue on climate change. You see things that in the refugee debates, you know, place after place after place where experts think that their consensus should really be imposed on everybody. You know, we're not really sure what's the right policy, but the expert consensus becomes the only respectable, politically correct policy. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is a problem. Winston Churchill would have thought that was a problem. Uh, but others uh, might disagree. With with regards to being worse in Australia, as you say, than it is in America, yeah. like if we don't fix it, what's, what, is there a doom and gloom scenario that no. you see on the horizon? No, I don't see doom and gloom. I just simply see less and less real democracy, uh, more and more managed democracy. Look at Sweden, for example. Sweden's golden years under the social democratic rule in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, and 90s were truly golden years in Sweden. Uh, you know, Sweden had the best health statistics, the best education statistics. You know, on every measurable outcome, Sweden outperformed the world. And yet, every election was won by the Social Democratic Party. Other parties were not really given any opportunity to compete. The Social Democratic Party monopolized the education system. It literally put social democracy into the school system as the Swedish way of doing politics. Um, So Sweden became an extraordinarily enlightened country that was really not very democratic. Which would you rather have? Uh, People might legitimately prefer the well-governed country where elections are managed by people uh, in the, you know, greater for the greater good of the majority or even for the entire population. But of course, what if you're a maverick in Sweden? You know, what if you're uh, you know, a, a religious Catholic in Sweden and you just don't like all the liberalism of social democracy, sex education? Well, tough on you, right? We know it's good for the country. And so you, Catholic conservative, have no place in this society. Right? And I think people can accept, you know, as I put it earlier, getting voted off the island, people can accept being voted off the island if they're voted off the island. Mm. Uh, but they don't want to be appointed off the island. They don't want to be appointed off the island. You know, that's, <laughs> that's really offensive. That, you know, and, and I think a lot of conservatives in Australia feel that way about issues relating to sexuality, issues relating to transgender children, for example. There's a big debate right now over whether uh, children with the, with the advice of doctors can decide to have transgender surgeries and have transgender hormones against their parents' will. So, you know, a 12-year-old, a 13-year-old, deciding that he or she is transgender and the parent is opposed and their, you know, religious, you know, priest or rabbi or, or, you know, pastor is opposed uh, or even just their friends, their grandparents are opposed. 
But if the doctor deems that the child is genuinely transgender, that they can get a court order uh, to have the treatment and the parents can't interfere. The parents can be jailed for it if they interfere. Well, a lot of people are very upset about that. Now, I can't tell you what the right answer is here from a medical standpoint. I'm not a medical doctor. But I can tell you what the democratic answer would be if you put this up for a referendum in Australia. You know, Australians certainly would not allow the medical profession to perform surgeries and impose hormone regimes on children against their parents' wishes. Absolutely. It would, it would lose in a referendum by a landslide. But of course, it won't be put to a vote. It'll be kept as a issue for a medical board to decide. And the anyone who tries to interfere with that medical board will be accused of political interference in medicine. And there you go. And these are the sorts of issues that, you know, I don't care much about. I don't even have kids and I'm not against transgender. And I, you know, I, I mean, I have no horse in this race, mm. but I do believe in democracy. And, you know, I think these kinds of issues, even if the democracy gets it wrong, which democracy will get it wrong a lot of times, uh, even if democracy gets it wrong, these are still issues that should be open to democratic decision-making. Rob Khan, Salvatore Benes, it's a pleasure like always. Thank you very much. Your new book is The New Authoritarianism. Trump, Populism, and the Tyranny of Experts. Trump, Populism, and the Tyranny of Experts. It's available now, and if you go on the website, buildingjerusalem.org, you can get a 20% off, or something percent off. We're we'll not get sure. you a coupon. We'll get There'll you be a coupon, coupon on the front page. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me on. This is General Ike, Building Jerusalem.